Good morning, everyone. The reading for this morning is from Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you, sister. Well, you see, what we were doing there was trying to, you know, illustrate for you the nature of waiting in Advent, right, and the coming of the Word of God. No, but our, our, our preacher, Brother Russ Whitfield, has arrived, and so we're grateful, we're grateful to receive the Word of God from him. Um, for those of you that may not know, Pastor Russ is the pastor of our sister congregation, Grace Mosaic, and has been pastoring there for a number of years, and um, they just, uh, actually, I think they're still finishing up their service, so he hopped in a car and came, rushed on over here, as our preachers will be doing uh, each week over Advent. And so we're so grateful uh, for you. I hope you caught your breath a little bit, um, but so grateful uh, for you to be here. For those of you that maybe have been worshiping with us online over the last year will know Pastor Russ um, from the rotation of preaching that we shared in our virtual services. Um, but Russ, thank you so much for being here. Uh, we're grateful. Uh, friends, let's welcome our brother uh, by putting our hands together and saying thank you. Good morning, Grace Meridian Hill. So, I am so glad to be here with you. And yes, if you're wondering, this is a mask for a bearded man. <laughs> Pastor Duke checked in with me yesterday. He's like, hey, did you, uh, did you take your COVID test? I said, no, I'm waiting to see if I test positive for a good sermon. Then I'll determine whether or not I'm positive or negative for COVID. So, praise the Lord, I'm, 
I'm negative on COVID. We'll see about the sermon, right? Uh, I'm really grateful to be here with all of you. Grateful for God's grace to all of us in uh, an extraordinarily difficult uh, two years. Uh, and so um, without further ado, I want to encourage you to join me uh, as we turn to our scripture reading for this morning. Uh, we're going to be working out of Revelation chapter 7. And before I jump in here, I want to ask you to join me in prayer. Father, thank you for these precious brothers and sisters. Thank you for your love for them. Thank you for coming for them. And thank you, Lord, for the hope that you have laid upon us that we have the privilege to share with our neighbors. Thank you for giving us the moral and ethical resources to be a force for good in this world. And we ask that you would help us today to remember who we are, to remember what you've done, and to take up the life of love with renewed focus and energy. We need your help now, Lord, that we may be not only hearers of your word, but doers of your word. So bless your people now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a kid, my parents used to get me these thousand piece puzzles. Um, it was really their way of getting rid of me for a little while. And so I would take these thousand piece puzzles and I would go and I would sit down and try to put these pieces together. And initially I would tend to start off kind of hopeful. But the longer and longer I tried to get all of these pieces connected into a coherent whole, the more frustrated I became. And at some point I just grew weary of the whole idea. And on one of these occasions, I was sitting there surrounded by scattered puzzle pieces. And my dad came into the room and he observed me for a few minutes and he said, son, son, listen, you have to focus on the top of the puzzle box. The only way that you will get all of these pieces together is if you know this picture in your mind and you have it fixed in your mind, that is going to be your guide for getting all of these pieces connected together. And then he sat down with me and helped me to put that puzzle together. Diversity is a buzzword of importance in our cultural moment, isn't it? It's reflected in the media that we consume. Think about the ads, like Target ads. What do those Target ads have? A bunch of ambiguously brown people that look like me, and you're like, what are they? I don't know, they could be my people. Maybe they are my people. I'm everybody's people, right? We, we see it in, in the media we consume. Corporations are now adding new C-suite positions to their corporate structure to add chief officer of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Conference planners are under increased pressure to make sure that their speaker panels and their speaker lineups reflect a commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion. One could argue that we have never seen such a concentrated social effort to achieve cross-cultural diversity. People have pulled out all of the stops to see it happen. But here's the sad irony. When we look around at the state of our society, all we see is a bunch of scattered puzzle pieces. And it often seems impossible to put those pieces together, doesn't it? The past few years, 
have brought a growing polarization, tribalism, and racial retrenchment. We have become estranged from our neighbors, and we've even become estranged from one another within the church. We have what Ed Gilbreth calls the reconciliation blues. However hopeful we may have started out when we were surrounded by puzzle pieces, we have now gotten to the point where we are frustrated and weary of the pursuit. I don't know about y'all, I have some folks in my church who, that's their job, that's what they do. They work in diversity, equity, and inclusion. And even with all of the tools that our modern age has pulled out, every time I talk to them, there is some new frustration because things are going too slow. Or the people in power want to keep things in status quo and it's difficult to move the needle. But here's the thing. This frustrated longing for a connected society, for cross-cultural diversity, this frustrated longing is one of the very reasons why we need Advent. Those of us who work in this space, those of us who are part of cross-cultural community, we need Advent. We need the message that it is okay to bring your frustrated longings to the Lord because the hope and the promise is that those frustrated longings will be fulfilled. Advent is the season where we honestly face the disappointments and we face the brokenness and the suffering and the pain that characterizes life in this present world. But these are held in dynamic tension with the promise of future glory that is yet to come when Jesus returns. We live our lives in the tension between the tragedy of this world and the triumph of the next. Advent begins in the dark, but it moves toward the light. So for these next four weeks of Advent, we're going to work through a series entitled, A Weary World Rejoices. A Weary World Rejoices, taken from that beautiful Christmas Advent hymn, Old Holy Night. And what we're going to do is we're going to explore how the coming of Christ meets our deepest longings. Each week is going to hit a new theme. So today, we're going to take a look at the top of the puzzle box, as it were, in Revelation 7. And what we're going to see is how it is that Jesus, through his people, but Jesus brings the scattered puzzle pieces into a coherent and beautiful picture. And we're going to approach this text through two points. We're going to consider the coming reunion and the coming redeemer. So let's look at that, this first point, the coming reunion. Now, when we get into this passage in the book of Revelation, we are encountering a context in which the Apostle John has been exiled on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, as he puts it. The emperor Domitian was requiring citizens to confess that he, as the Roman Caesar, was Lord and God. This was the test of their loyalty as Roman citizens. But the Apostle John knew himself to be a citizen of a far greater kingdom. And he only recognized one Lord and God, and that was Jesus Christ. 
And now God is giving John this vision and this calling to minister to the church at the time. And what he was called to do, what John's ministry was, was to call the church to endurance and persecution and assurance of victory. That was the ministry of John. Why do we get the whole book of Revelation? It is to call the church to endurance and persecution and assurance of victory. And he does this by giving them an astonishing scene of the final, final end of the story. What, what did John see in these visions? Take a look at verse 9. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every tribe, from every nation and peoples and languages. The first thing that John saw was diversity. Now here's what's interesting. In relaying what he saw in this vision, John could have kept it generic. He could have said, and then I saw a whole bunch of folk, right? He, he could have kept it general. But he piles on the language to describe the incredible diversity of this throne room scene. And notice that the diversity even gets down into dialects and diverse tribal distinctions. In other words, he doesn't just see Nigerians, he sees Yoruba and Igbo people. He doesn't just see Kenyans, he sees Maasai and Kamba people. He doesn't just see Chinese, he sees Tibetan and Mongolian people. He sees Arabs and Americans, Bengalis and Punjabis, Danes and Dominicans, Jews and Japanese, Persians and Portuguese, Scottish and Somali, Peruvians and Polynesians. John saw the diversity, and so must we. So must we. And this immediately brings us to an understanding of our need for repentance. Right here, we must repent. Because we often allow certain people to become invisible to us. We don't see them. I was once spending some time sitting outside of 7-Eleven on 12th Street in my neighborhood with one of my friends, Mr. Jones, who lives on the street. Whenever he's not cursing me out, he's my best friend. And uh, on this occasion, he decided we were friends. And so I asked him, I said, Mr. Jones, if someone asked you, to, to describe what is the most difficult thing about your life that you have to live right now, what would it be? And without missing a beat, he didn't say it was the pangs of hunger. He didn't see it, say it was the weather and, and the inclement weather and the cold sleeping on the street. His response was, feeling like nobody can see me. It was invisibility. He testified to that. We have to repent because if there's any place where people should feel that they are seen. It's in God's community. We often allow the differences that we face to become threatening to us or unimportant to us or just disregarded by us. Sometimes we try to hammer down the distinctiveness of other people to try and make them into our likeness, to make them assimilate in order to gain our acceptance. We all do this to the other. But God loves the diversity. He loves the diversity of all that he has made, and we must love what God loves and think God's thoughts after him. 
Something really formative, I think, it just sits on the surface of the text, it's powerful, it's profound, that we need to recognize is this. This picture was given to the church at the very beginning of its mission. Why? Why would God give his church this scene at the very beginning of their mission? Here's why. Because he wanted the end of the story to inform the way that they lived in the story in their life on the way. The, the end of the story was meant to shape the way that they lived in the Advent tension. It showed them the scope of who they were to love. It showed them the scope of who God was redeeming. It showed them the scope of their missionary work. There was absolutely no people group on the planet excluded. And so it was another way of answering that age-old question. And who is my neighbor? <laughs> God says, behold. Everybody, right? This is what we see in the text. The end was supposed to shape their mission on the way. You see, in the first century world, unity and diversity was unheard of. It wasn't a thing. This was absolutely astonishing to first century people. But the Lord gives this church a profound picture of the coming kingdom so that they can join as participants in his work. But also know this. God gives them this picture because when they went out into the world uh, to work out this vision and they were going out to different people groups and they were trying to minister the gospel to different people groups, you can imagine the kinds of challenges and trials they faced, right? You don't even have to imagine it. Read the book of Acts. It was rough. It was difficult trying to connect with different people. And not only that, when they actually did connect with different people and tried to bring those people together to live in one family, it got even more difficult. And you see this all over the pages of the New Testament. Paul has to jack up Peter in Galatians 2. Uh, he urges two women who are at one another's throats in Philippians to be at peace with one another. This is all over the scriptures. Paul and Barnabas have to go separate ways because of disagreement. It was going to be challenging for all of this difference to take shape in the church. You can think about the way that the widows were treated differently in Acts 6 and they had to come up with new ministry strategy to address injustices. There were all these different new things that they had to sort through. It was very difficult and you can imagine how those first century believers were tempted to experience the very kinds of feelings that you and I experience today in our cross-cultural efforts. Frustrating. People aren't getting it. People don't want to do the obvious 101 Christian living thing. It's tough. So God gives them this picture as an encouragement. It shall be done. It shall be done. God is the one who initiated this cross-cultural world. God is the one who initiated this cross-cultural community. He sustains this cross-cultural community. He resources his cross-cultural community. And he will bring that final picture to pass. When we feel like we're tired and we can't give anymore or we can't endure anymore, we can look at this final picture for encouragement to press on. We also have to remember that this is a picture of glory. Glory. 
This is a picture of the glorious future of God. And I often hear people suggest that the problem with our divisions is that we talk about our differences and we should all just forget about our distinctions. But look, even in glory, ethnic distinctions and diversity are not erased or downplayed. They actually serve to accentuate the celebration. Unity and diversity mattered enough to get a mention in glory. Listen, I want you to hear me. The problem with our divisions is not about the differences around us. It's about the depravity within us. It's the depravity within us that leads us to exclude the other and disregard the other by dehumanizing the other. This is what allows us to accept conditions for our neighbors that we would not accept for ourselves. This is what leads us to choose a posture of fear, suspicion, and conflict over a posture of faith, curiosity, and communion. This is what, it is, it is from that inner brokenness that we construct systems and we, and we create these unlevel playing fields that bring damage to different people who have to suffer the injustice. The problem is not that we have difference. The problem is not that we name the difference. The problem is that the depravity within causes us to devalue and mistreat the difference. But how are all of these different puzzle pieces put together in Revelation 7? How does it all come together? This brings us to our second and final point, the coming Redeemer. John notices diversity, but notice the very next thing that John witnesses. He saw diversity, but what were these diverse people doing? Look at verses 9 through 10. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The next thing that John saw was doxology bringing the diversity together. It is a scene of worship. But we need to be reminded of just why this scene of worship is so profound. Why are these people from every walk of life, from all over the globe, crying out with a unified voice? You have to see what they were singing. You have to see who they were seeing. And this is why they were crying out. John gives us a glimpse in chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. This is what they were seeing. John says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. 
But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death and Hades. Now, go back to Revelation 7 and see why this diverse group is gathered in unity around the throne. They are laying eyes on this God and Savior and they are absolutely overwhelmed. The G-forces of his glory are weighing them down. They are being caught up into his majesty, completely overwhelmed in his goodness. And now their pain has turned to praise. That life of worry has turned to worship. Their frustrations have turned into fulfillment. Their tears have been translated into triumph. And their faith has become sight. Every single person in this diverse congregation gathered around the throne is shouting praise to the Lamb. Not whispering. Not whispering. I want you to imagine this. It is the game-winning touchdown in the Super Bowl, and the whole crowd is jumping around saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Can you believe it? I can't believe it. It's amazing. That is closer to the picture. The reason why they are shouting and celebration is because every one of them had a story to tell of what the Lord had done to get them in that throne room. They knew they had no business being there except for the blood of the Lamb. He had brought them through many trials. He had brought them through many sufferings. He had kept them through their own failures and faults. He kept them through losses and frustrations. And now they have entered into the triumph of the Lamb. There's this old gospel song called, I Shall Wear a Crown. And at the end of the song, it says this, I'm going to put on my robe and tell the story of how I made it over. And that's what these people are doing right now. The, 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 the cliff note version of how they made it over was salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is their story. They are reveling in the scope of God's redeeming love. They are seeing the vision that transforms life together. Think of everything that's not in the center of this scene, binding this diverse crowd together. Partisan politics isn't in the center of this scene, holding people together. Neither shared hobbies, shared causes, or national origin are centered here. It is the Lamb. Now this is what's interesting. If you read through the scriptures, you will notice that Jesus, the Son of God, is called many things. He has many names. He's called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Emmanuel, the Bright and Morning Star, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the son of David. He is called many things, but John calls him in this scene, the lamb. And what this shows us 
is that it is cross-centeredness that holds cross-cultural together. The only thing strong enough to hold cross-cultural together is cross-centeredness. Why? Because with cross-centeredness, we have the paradigm that where sin abounds, grace superabounds. With cross-centeredness, we have the paradigm that nobody needs the gospel more than me. We have the resources for forgiveness. We have the resources for patience and forbearance. We have the resources for covering a multitude of sins. We have the resources for repentance when we've been dead wrong and we can yet still be accepted. It's the gospel that gives us the resources to live into this cross-cultural picture. Again, I applaud the common grace that we see in our society where our neighbors want to see cross-cultural connection. They want to see people be able to live and have equal opportunities and not be mistreated or giving uh, unjust circumstances because of their difference, because of a racial caste system or because of a socioeconomic kind of caste. They want to see that. But here's the thing. For all of the efforts that modernity has given us for all of the tools it still leaves us wanting it's like none of our efforts are enough to figure out how to crack this nut but Jesus is showing us in this text that he is able that he will bring it to pass It's love, gratitude, and reverence for the Lamb that unifies this diversity. And this is meant to shape our life now. It's meant to shape our life now. They were wearing white robes and waving palm branches. And that was a sign of victory. It was a sign of victory. And I want you to think about what this meant to a first century church that was absolutely marginalized in society. The church was a marginal community at the time. They were, they were being ground under the wheel of the Roman power. They were being used, Christians were being used as torches to light the garden of evil emperors. They were being persecuted. They were being beaten and threatened at any moment. The, the, the authorities could break through the doors and drag everyone in the church off to an execution or to be sport in the Colosseum. So can you imagine what it meant for them to be given this scene of victory? It gave them assurance and endurance that they would one day be caught up into the triumph of the Lamb. The Lord shows us in this passage that he has a word for marginalized people. And if the Lord has a word for the marginalized, so must we. His word for the marginalized is that he will make it right. They will not forever be on the margins. At some point, they're going to be brought to the center, to the very throne room of God, and their dignity will be fully recognized and expressed in their union with community and their communion with God. It's a beautiful picture. Let us have a word for the marginalized. So here's the summary of this text. John saw diversity, and John saw doxology, and when you put them together, it gives us the uniqueness of the Christian pursuit of cross-cultural love. And that uniqueness is doxological diversity. 
Doxological diversity is to say that the reason why Christians pursue cross-cultural love and commit to cross-cultural love is not because it's politically correct. I've said that a lot, but upon deeper reflection, I think maybe you could say that, but it's deeply political because our, over, our overarching politic is Jesus is Lord. So we do pursue it for a political reason, but it's a higher politic than anything this world has to offer. But it's not that common notion of political correctness that leads us to pursue cross-cultural love. You know, lots of people pursue it because of pragmatics, pragmatism. We do it because it works. But Christians should not pursue cross-cultural love because it works, because what happens when it stops working? You stop doing it. We don't pursue cross-cultural love because it's popular. You know why? Because when it's unpopular, it will disappear. We pursue cross-cultural love for the glory of God. That is our purpose, but also the result of glorifying God is cross-cultural love. It's cross-cultural community. It's both the purpose and the result. Doxological diversity, shared worship of Christ that brings this diversity into unity, which reminds us, time did I start here? I got a little time. All right. Praise God. Praise God. He's multiplying the fish and the loaves. Praise God. <laughs> Sorry, y'all. I'm delirious at this point. I'm usually delirious after preaching one sermon. Um, I didn't forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> Listen, it's not pragmatism. It's not popularity. It's doxology. That's why we pursue it. That's what God once in our hearts as we pursue this and that is what gives us resilience in the work that's what gives us endurance when because you know what when you engage this work that word of jesus comes true if they hated me they're gonna hate you you will in this world you will have trouble but revelation 7 is the proof of what jesus said but take heart i've overcome the world we overcome through the word of God and, and the testimony of Christ. This is the way we press on in faith, hope, and love. But what, what should we take away from this text in terms of like tangible kind of ways to work it out? The first thing I want to say to you out of this text is that this passage uh, gives us a better ethic and that is to say this, the ethic that our, our age gives to us is the ethic of tolerance. We ought to tolerate one another. And at a certain level, that's most certainly true. But I want you to think more deeply, Christian, because we all know the fact that you can tolerate someone while you look down your nose at them. You can tolerate someone while you completely disregard the things that are crushing them. You see, tolerance doesn't go far enough. The Christian ethic is love. And love will not allow you to remain passive when the beloved is suffering. Love will not allow you to remain silent when justice demands that you raise your voice. And just in case you're wondering, you can go and look at the Westminster Shorter Catechism question and answer chapter 9 that tells us that it is a breaking of the ninth commandment to be silent in the face of an unjust cause. That's our confessional commitments 
as Presbyterians. Some of you might not know we're Presbyterians, just like some of my folks don't know that we're Presbyterians, but these are some of our underpinnings. You see, we need a better ethic than tolerance. We need to embrace the ethic of love, and that ethic is most fully embodied in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. That's where we get to see what it looks like to be fully human, living under the, the reign of God for the purposes of glorifying his name. The second thing we need is a better ecclesiology. And that is to say, we need a better self-understanding as the church. We have all these different versions of what the church is. Sometimes the church is treated like a country club for the well-dressed and the well-mannered and the well-heeled. Sometimes the church is treated like an insurance company where you come in and get your fire insurance and then, you know, you're gone. You're good to go. You know, maybe you walked the plank back in youth group and came down to the altar, right? Uh, and you think you're all good to go. But these conceptions of the church are insufficient. The church is God's missionary community, his family that he has called together to be an anticipation of the life to come. Now, let me give you a little picture to kind of frame it up. I like going to the mall, but not to shop for clothes or anything. I like going to the mall because there's this magical place called the food court. And in the food court, there are these amazing people who stand outside with these trays, with these delicious pieces of bourbon chicken with toothpicks in them. And every time I walk past, you know, they'll say, sir, would you like some bourbon chicken? And I always say, why, yes, yes, I would. And I get one of those two picks and I take a bite and it never fails. I get like two steps away and I'm like, "Mm, it got good to me. But because I'm ambiguously brown, what I do is I make the long loop around the food court. And then the next time I come through, I say, hola, como estas, que es eso? And and they kind of look at me like, didn't I just see you? And I said, no, no, me, no. Quiero eso, right? But then I, t- I take a, I, then I get another one, right? But I usually have one more in me. So when I come back around, I say, Assalamu alaikum. And they're like, right? Now, why are these people standing out here with these trays of meat trying to make my life better? Why are they out there? Here's why. They're out there with these little pieces of chicken on the tray because they want you to get a little taste so that you'll come in and get the real thing. The church is supposed to be a little taste of the life that is to come, of the joy that is to come, of the community connection that is to come, of the love that is to come. We are to be the foretaste of glory, the the trailer to the movie, the brochure of glory. That is who we are. We are called to give our neighbors a taste, even in small ways, in humble ways ways, in the ordinary life kind of ways, of that life that is to come. We need a better ecclesiology. But we also have to remember something really important, and it's this. A lot of times, we as Christians say that we want to see things happen in the world. We want to see the poor taken care of. We want to see cross-cultural love and connection. But there's a breakdown for us. And I'm going to put it to you like this. When I was growing up in western Pennsylvania, there was this staggering uh, blizzard that hit in 1993. The blizzard of 1993. And, you know, my dad worked for the Pennsylvania Department of Transportation. And he, he did snow removal and all that kind of stuff. So he always knew in advance what was coming down the line 
in terms of school cancellation and all that. And so we'd be excited waiting for school cancellation. Uh, but on this occasion, my dad said, well, Junior, you better get your shovel ready. Because here's the deal. I grew up beside my grandparents and their best friend, Miss Ivanko. So in the summer, I wasn't just cutting our grass. I was cutting my grandparents' grass and Miss Ivanko's grass. In the fall, I wasn't just raking our leaves. I was raking my grandparents' leaves and Miss Ivanko's leaves. And in the, the winter, I was not just shoveling our snow. I was shoveling my grandparents' snow and Miss Ivanko's snow. So the blizzard hits. And all the joy of school cancellation just disappeared in the morning. When I walked out to see 36 inches of snow that was up to my thighs, have you ever had a job that is so like there's so much it's so overwhelming you just sit there and look at it for a minute and just go mm, mm, mm. like just hoping it'll magically reduce and it's not going to reduce i stood i shoveled snow all day i broke my back my parents my grandparents had this long driveway miss Ivanko had a gravel driveway so the shovel wouldn't go across it right so when my dad came home from work i had finished as soon as he stepped out of his truck, I said, Dad, we got to have a talk, man. We got to, you know, I, I've been reevaluating life. And I've come to the conclusion that Grandma and Grandpa need a snowblower. And my dad, without hesitation, said, oh, they have one. And I was like, what do you mean they have one? You mean to tell me I've been out here shoveling snow all day and they have a snowblower? He said, you're their snowblower. <laughs> Here's the deal. You know what God is saying to you when you express a desire to see cross-cultural love? He's saying, you're the snowblower. You know what God's saying to you when it's time to care for the poor? You're the snowblower. You know what God wants you to take up when you look out over the neighborhood and there are things, there are disparities between the way the neighborhood is and the way you know it was meant to be? He's saying, y'all are the snowblower. So let us take up our role in this story. Our neighbors are not our competitors. Our labors for the purposes of creating cross-cultural love, they're not in vain. They're not in vain. God will redeem every effort you make to share his love and to create connection with others. The grace and love of God are not a zero-sum game where more grace for them means less grace for me. More love for them means less love for me. We are united to the ever-living source. So, finally, let us pray. Let us pray that our impulses for polarization will give way to a life of gospelization. Sharing the message of God's redeeming love in Jesus and embodying that life so that that love will become more believable to every tribe, every tongue, every people group and distinction on the earth. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, for your guidance. We ask that you would help us. We believe in this final picture, Lord, but help our unbelief. I pray for those in here who are feeling particularly weary on this note this morning. I pray that you would give them strength, that you would renew their hope, and that they would double down on this calling to live as your people in the world. I pray, Lord, that you would beautify our life together so that we can rightly adorn the grace of the gospel in Jesus Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen.